Hey there, and welcome to Storytelling with Seth. Yet another opportunity to sit down with a great creator, this time around, Mr. Malcolm Wong, giving me the opportunity to learn about the amazing dog eaters and looking forward into a dystopian future while at the same time reflecting on the present that can lead us there and maybe some opportunities to change the future. Join me now with Malcolm Wong. <laughs> because any any time that the conversation moves into a concept like neo feudalism, I'm like, all right, yeah, we're gonna hit the record now. We're gonna we're gonna get to the uh, the other fun things. I'm talking today with Malcolm Moore, who has been gracious enough to share with me a review copy of Dog Eaters and some great bio information that goes along with it and characters. And as we started just preparing to hit record. He brings up neo-feudalism, at which point I figure we have to hit record. So I love this idea that you're just talking about where, yeah, you think of the you know previous version of feudalism as we understand it, perhaps related as it's most frequently associated with like the Middle Ages and this concept of, you know, you work the land that's owned by somebody else, you're tied to that land, you're basically giving your life for that land for the right to work it under somebody else's authority and your existence is based on how long you can maintain productivity uh, on that land it, basically how long you're useful that's how long you get to exist in that place it, it, in a neo feudalism approach what what are we talking about that might seem different and yet also like a natural evolution of of this history well multi multinational uh, corporations um which pretty much I mean, if not rule the world, totally um, influence it. I mean, we're talking about people like Bill Gates, um, you know, Soros. These kind of people, their their tentacles are, you know, Goldman Sachs. These these the tentacles transcend national boundaries. It's you know, it's and and transcend the 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 politicians lifespans in terms of like okay four years four years four years it's like a bureau you know it's it's so deep it's a foundation and you have all this other stuff that's just kind of like frosting on a cake but the cake remains hidden not only hidden but you know it stays long after the frosting has been you know melted away one of the biggest challenges I have, this idea about things that are being created for, you know, an effect that generations will be feeling while those who are pushing them through don't seem to care about that idea. Like, it's like it's that not, same idea, of like, it's not about, me. It's about, well, it is, you know, lifespan. People don't think, you know, how many people have, have even written a will. But the, um, the thing is, is that, education about the history the real history not just dates of when a battle was fought and won but why those battles were fought and why they were won or lost it's like the american revolution oh the boston tea party that was a proxy war between france and england yes <laughs> you know it's like yeah freedom whatever you know or uh, you know, it's, it, and just the way that uh, the framing of, of history doesn't give us the real meaning behind what humans, you know, the motivation of humans is. 
So anyway, perfect example. That's a great example because, you know, you can look at it as like, oh, wow, it's this great fight for freedom by this young upstart throwing off colonialism. Okay, but you're also looking at the investment opportunity of the sides who are helping them because they know this is a rich land of resources that they can help take advantage of by providing support now and then getting payment for it later. It, <laughs> so it changes deep. context when you view it a little bit deeper, right? It's like so you pull deep. back so and you're like, oh, look yeah. at this. Here we go. So you said now we're, we're taking that idea. We're talking about a future where we've had a die off, where there's just a small population left and those who can you know essentially control resources are apparently uh the the big players on the field yeah it's um so basically um dog eaters is a um a response a reaction to what was happening uh which started basically you know after uh, 9 11. uh before 9 11 you know the the end of the of the 1990s i went well you know traveling oh it was just so easy um the travel the feeling everything um i mean yeah we had the we had the early um gulf war uh the first gulf war with uh with bush uh the first bush and but still you know and we had the um we had a lot of um feeling of freedom and uh, money was easier. Uh, of course, now we realize that money is kind of fake and, you know, this kind of like um, these bubbles are, are induced. Um, but back then it was kind of like, then we had 9-11 and all the mythology around that. But what happened was, you know, the, things like um, the first, um celebrities you know lindsay lohan and um hilton you don't have to try and remember too many names i won't recall many i'm the one who most often will look at my wife when someone appears on the screen <laughs> and i'll go is that person famous and she'll let me know like oh yeah they or you know they're famous for this and then i sort of know the context which is interesting because you're describing a similar idea around 2000, the late 90s, after this moment, there became this concept of people who were famous for reasons other than what had traditionally been a reason to be considered a celebrity. You were a film or television celebrity, or you were a sports celebrity of some degree, but there was just, you know, a couple of definitions of it. And it seems it's greatly expanded since 9-11, uh, since the early yeah, 2000s and everything. Instagram influencers and everything, but the seed of that uh, celebrity culture, the seed of the sort of this distractions, these, um, in a way, it's kind of like pseudo religion. It's kind of like, um, and, you know, they come and go quickly. Um, gods also, god and goddesses also came and went. Um, we still remember some of them, but like these little idols, um, it's kind of like, um, animism you know they're in the they're in the jungle and then there's these little these little shrines to these gods and goddesses uh scattered around which we, you know it's now in in the contemporary state where there's you know tons of it in tons of different places like um you know different social media um uh, different uh you know TikTok or instagram or mm -hmm. this kind of thing where they're 
or, or sports or or whatever music uh, entertainment but um as this culture was building i mean we've always had some of this but it's really exploded this distraction and the kind of like the never-ending wars um without any explanation and the, just this general um degeneration of culture and politics and manners basically and so this kind of feeling that i had it had to be you know it was expressed in initially a screenplay uh called dog eaters and um this won three awards at the uh, screenwriting expo in la screen uh, screenwriting expo five so at this time this is before subprime and um there was a lot of like free-floating money a lot of european money and movies things were getting made that was like so terrible really back then and so what happened was the these contests um it was kind of like the height of these contests right before subprime when all the money disappeared but three awards one was a, a management a literary management one was action adventure and one was um the dable brothers award which was to adapt the screenplay into six issues of uh, comic issues and then compiled into a graphic novel and so that was that's my that was my introduction into um comic creating comics um so I enjoyed some of the things you mentioned, you know, you you offered some great notes regarding that experience and how you felt that there was a very prescient moment when I I believe maybe it was one of the Dable brothers, maybe it was someone else who was talking with you and said, yeah, you can turn it into a movie, but there's other options. And you felt, okay, well, there's clearly a reason why you brought up these other options as a possibility and, and a suggestion and how that became a great opportunity for you to explore when uh, you're considering what the alternative might be. And it seemed as though in, in this instance, going in the direction of the, the graphic novel was one that was going to um, really benefit you. Was there- The thing, the thing about um, opportunity or even like, you know, when you, if you're doing some kind of acting exercise, it's all about saying yes. Because once you say no, it's over. Right, everything stops, right? But yeah. you're trying to almost create this moment, magic, you know, other reality. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like so if you say yes, I mean, you can get into a lot of trouble too. You can go into debt, <laughs> totally. But, um, but the thing is, is that, okay, so what? what is it all about? Um, you know, what are you saving, what are you saving up to be, you know, that kind of thing. There was a there's a great line in Platoon. I don't think you can say it anymore. Um, it's one of my wife's favorite movies. In fact, um, I can also say, just as an interesting twist, because my wife is Filipina, and when she heard the term dog eaters for the title, she instantly said, Well, this is interesting. I'm curious about the material. Because for her, this is a derogatory term that she's heard used applied to her culture, that she is aware of has been applied to other cultures and she actually has a, a really uh, a great book by jessica hagedorn called yes Eaters. yes um, okay yeah so it was really interesting for me for that you know just awareness of thinking 
hey, I've heard this before. What's the name of that book? And when I mentioned it to her, we had this great little exchange in this idea. So, you know, you're 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 bringing up this this idea of like, you know, what opportunities look like and also you know, when it comes along with it, um, what meanings are to people, you know, how it is that you're creating definitions of meanings for people, you know, based on how you're defining things like dog eaters, like the concept of neo-feudalism and others. I just wanted to enjoy that for a second because. <laughs> well, the thing about, um, yeah, it's a, it's a derogatory term actually in the graphic novel as well, but it's, it's not anything that's dwelled upon. Um, there's no real um, discriminatory. I mean, there are, of course, villains, villains, enemies that um, in the story they're uh, they're called roaches, and they're um, the offspring, the descendants of prisoners in the multi, uh, maximum security pris uh, prisons. So basically, they were they were shielded from the die-off. Mm -hmm. So basically, Dog Eaters takes place 175 years after the die-off. And, and you place it in the U.S. Southwest. Yes, in the U.S. Southwest. Um, and the Black Dog Clan, first of all, mankind failed to transcend the petroleum age. Yes. 175 years after the die-off, civilization consists of scattered nomadic tribes, isolated casino cities, and roving swarms of predatory bandits. These are the roaches. The Black Dog Clan makes its way down the trade route between the casino cities of the American Southwest on their way to establish their own city on the Gulf. So basically, it's a turn of history. You know, like um, the wild, so-called Wild Wild West is actually a very short period of time. It's yes. like it's like <laughs> twenty years, basically. <laughs> and then the white man just destroyed the Plains Indians' food product, food um, ability to have food. They killed all the buffalo the bison mm -hmm. right. and they ran a railroad track right through it, you know, which um, the Chinese they built. Also, they also <laughs> demonstrated some pretty ugly early versions of chemical warfare against the Cherokee tribes and the Trail of Tears, disease blankets, you know, yeah, yeah, um, all that stuff, food and things so, like that. So you know, the so wild, wild west period was actually very, very short. I mean, right. based on the amount of movies and whatever, you kind of think it's like, uh, you know, lasted a long time. There's a lot of history there, but it's really quite short. And so 175 years after the die-off is a long period of time. Yes. Really a long period of time. We're talking about, you know, the 1800, uh, almost 200 years ago. So yeah, 1800s, you know, so the difference between the 1800s and now. Mm -hmm. And so if, um, you know, the whole, everything breaks down and then you have this kind of like um, where most apocalyptic stories are is like, you know, people just like, um, you know, it's just like total chaos, total barbarism, but we're starting to build out of that again. And so it's starting to coalesce 
culture is starting to coalesce, civilization is starting to coalesce around casino cities, and it's 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 building back up. And this way of life, this nomadic way of life, this kind of warfare that um, civilization is coming back. And this is right at the cusp of that. This story is set at that time. They're giving up their nomadic life to build their own civilized situation on the Gulf. And Which uh, is actually a, a goal of the... Uh... The uh, Black Dog Clan, right? There's yes, a, or the at least a goal. With, you know, their so, desire to, you know, create their own source of revenue by creating one of these casino cities that can sustain and also kind of put down roots and things like that. Yeah, it's not not necessarily casino uh, based, but um, oh. you know, they're going to be on the Gulf. They're going to have uh, food. They're going to have a food supply. They're going to, you know. They're going to be able to trade and you know do th be a trading center basically down there. So a different intention altogether. They're not here to prey on the people. It's almost like creating an an outlet where others can come, exchange resources, and yeah, they're and they're nomadic the trading, uh, trading basically nomadic trading uh, clan at the moment. But they're moving away from that because that way of life is changing. They have to evolve out of it. Um, as times change to, to um, you know, for the next generation, thinking about the next generation of. So, of yeah, I'm curious about that because in the uh, in the excerpt you shared with me, the the first issue section that I got a chance to read, they're in the process of transporting. When things go awry, they come across a, a dead roach, and they're you know suspicious. Ambush. And with good reason, yes, because there's an ambush. But I was thinking about, okay, so what's what's a valuable resource at this time? What are they transporting that's important enough for them to clearly be getting paid for it? I'm guessing as security or even just as basic transportation. Um, and and what resources are considered valuable? Mm -hmm. Is petroleum still something that's you know the <laughs> one of those bartering tools, much like it exists in our world right now? Are there other resources like maybe clean water, different, you know? Food yeah, their 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 vehicles are solar based. Um, okay. And solar photovoltaic. I mean, we don't get into technical details. It's, right. um, it's, you know, it's, it's a story. Um, sure. And they're basically they're they pick up uh, they pick up things to trade. Uh, in the screenplay, it's much more uh, clearly defined. There are. Um, I would call it, you know, places that where people meet at a certain time to trade and um, to share different resources from different parts of the country. And then they, you know, continue down to, you know, basically it's like a tinker, but I mean, it, it's on a larger scale, much larger scale. So you have traveling, you know, people that travel and, and transport and, you know, trade. Certainly. I, I teach a book called uh, Station Eleven. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it for one of my classes and well, a couple classes now. Uh, and and in it, there's, you know, another example, you know, that reminds me of, of moments where it's like the, the main characters in that story, especially in the uh, post-apocalyptic future, are part of a traveling band of musicians and artists who go around performing because that's really all they've got. And for some, they join because there's security there and it's not a requirement to like fight or loot or plunder or mm -hmm. be part of a gang mm -hmm. or things like that. So, you know, it's it's interesting that there's like these 
there's not many, but there's a few avenues to choose. And that in, in this regard, also, there's this changing of, um, of a generation, 175 years, you're about to have this development that's moving away from the roving and moving into the more the settling, something that, that we can see in our own history in the past where there were, you know, uh, periods of disruption, you think of the fall of the Roman Empire. I, I loved your example in your uh, synopsis you shared with me about the concept of Rome burning. What if Rome continued to burn and, and placing that idea here? So we, we are interestingly enough dealing with, you know, this idea of like, okay, the house is burned down. Um, and it, I'm going to ramble on a tangent if you don't mind, but it reminds me of uh, the TV show, The Newsroom, it, uh, which I was a fan of. And there's an episode where they're talking with a climatologist who's like, yeah, so, you know, tell us where we are right now. And he's like, okay, imagine there's a house on fire. And he's like, okay. And he goes, okay, imagine the house is burned down. And he's like, okay. And he's like, that's it. That's where we are. And he's like, what, what if we did, you know, cleaner fuel and, and solar and this and that? He's like, 30 years ago, that would have been amazing. He's like, now the house is burned down. I'm sorry, the house is burned down. And now the we've moved into a tent and we're lucky we have a mobile home. And that's where the right. clan is basically <laughs> large armored mobile homes, man, with turrets and firepower and... You know, yeah, I love the design and first appearance of the Black Dog Clan when they're moving through on that cool semi, and you know, everyone's kind of perched around, and then um, you have a great cast of characters as well. I'm gonna jump to that in a second because for one moment, I want to follow back on something you brought up that was, I think, really important. You know, you mentioned that you took this from a screenplay around 118 yes, pages, if I remember correctly. Right. And and through that process, you were describing how earlier you had some things that were more clearly defined in that screenplay that you had to um, modify in order to make them fit within the graphic novel. Yeah. The adaptation uh, from the screenplay to the graphic novel or to the comic required um, consolidating, cutting, um, editing. Um, so it is a it is a. Um, the interpersonal relationships are less um, are are streamlined. They're richer in the uh, screenplay. There's more, uh, you know, the B stories. Uh, basically, we have an A story and a B story. Um, you know, the A story is the main plot. The B story is um, relationships, and so the B stories in the screenplay are more uh, defined. Um, and more complicated, so you Certainly. get um, not as much as, uh, say, uh, a sixteen-episode series or you know, miniseries or anything like that. It doesn't get you know as deep as that, but you know, it's you know, it's deeper anyway. No, I understand. Um, and the great thing is, I, I love thinking about how many project started out as a film because that was the only way it could start and then later someone gets to follow up and do a series where you expand on all of these great moments you would have enjoyed doing more with and going longer for i, I love the idea that you're doing it as a graphic novel but you know as a comic book as a series collected as well that could also be turned into um, a film at some point in the future again or take on life in a series or some other form you know because you've already created a visual interpretation of the story now and 
with pieces that are really compelling, you can create an audience that's really hungry for like, okay, okay, this was great. Where's the, where's the one I can sink my teeth into for 16 episodes and, and really like find out all of the depth and nuance because you mentioned the complications. So I'm going to take an opportunity to dive into some of our characters here. We've been talking about the Black Dog Clan. We should probably, I should be responsible and include some of the things who they are so you can tell us more about them. We've got Dad Lamont and um, his wife, Matriarch Rebecca, and they've got uh, Tomahawk Tommy, He's the eldest son. We've also got the youngest daughter, Tracy. And then we have the complications you were describing. Stevie, loyal lieutenant, who finds himself at odds with Lamont when they both are going for Angie. And <laughs> it only gets more complicated when you've got the loyalty of characters like Chunga. And uh, is it Bevan or Bevan? Bevan, yes. Mm -hmm. this okay. He's this uh, stranger that triggers the ambush that um, warns the Black Dog Clan in the initial uh, opening um, sequence that there is an ambush. And so, be, you know, picking up strangers is not really um, something that Lamont is, is, uh, does. Fair he doesn't enough. trust <laughs> outsiders. And, you know, he, this mistrust of Bevan is a major uh, factor for what happens later in the story. There's also, you know, some reasons behind that. You, you know, mentioned in the character bios that he develops um, a relationship with Tracy, who is someone who cared, you know, is a caretaker for him when he gets injured. And then afterwards, I'm, I'm sure the, uh, the thoughts in Lamont's head, which are, Okay, well, I already have issues with you, and now you're, you know, making friends with my family. Okay, how much more of this can I handle before with my with my young daughter? Right. <laughs> so there's an importance involved, there, right? You know, and then on top of it, he's also caught where he, you know, has built this clan with Rebecca, and yet Angie is enough to put him not only at odds with his family potentially, but also risk a, a friendship with Stevie that's gone on for, well, readers are going to have to read to uh, learn more about, you know, how close their relationship is and, and how important it is when something like uh, desire comes between the two of them. Um, also, you know, <laughs> adding for a great third tension, how do you keep all of this together while you're trying to get to a place where you can set up this outpost and build? You know, you're trying to think about building for the future and yet the foundation you want to build on could be on the verge of crumbling. You're layering some really great tension throughout. Yeah. Must it's, have been um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting how um, power, it's a, it, you know, there's, a, you know, some kind of a, a perspective on power that, um, to some degree affects every every leader you know who has access to more than other people you know it's uh it's a responsibility and uh i think that every every powerful person every leader has this temptation that they either resist or succumb to and based on they're discovered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and what uh, reasons are you know anything can happen when you put yourself out there right you know like the cash app guy he gets <laughs> murdered you know so you know those things can, those things can happen right and and at first it appears to be one kind of story and you find out afterwards there's actually uh, much more involved it's much more complicated as we all are right as much as... more sordid and much more disgusting <laughs> and much more and yet much more titillating and kind of like wow that's kind of interesting maybe it was worth it <laughs> You, you, yeah. Well, I also, I'm torn on, you know, this thing that, that we come back to, you know, for, I live in that area, you know, I'm right outside of San Francisco. And for me, one of the things that was really important for a lot of people was that the first stories that were coming out, the first things that were being blasted was homeless crime in San Francisco claims yet another bright future. You know, this is all because of poverty and the poor and, and the downtrodden who are preying on those who are trying to build great life. You know, that's a, that's a very different narrative from what we are discovering now. And this, yeah. this idea, right, of yeah. power and, and how those who empower can cast a narrative very quickly on a scene that will influence many. And you can bring yes. this truth out later. And yes. to a degree, it's almost like it's only because this story is so much more sorted and interesting that it becomes something that people go, oh, wow, okay, I'm willing to look past what the initial story was and and maybe consider that it was about so much more but that's only those who are that interested others are going to hear oh no i heard he was killed by a homeless person that's the narrative this is another example of why power needs to have constant safeguards to protect itself why you know if you have you need to find a way to keep that you those who are in power as you point out what lengths will they go to? Will they be corrupted by that position where they can influence things, where they can play a role? Lord acted himself, right? Power corrupts, great power, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's And the thing is, is that the first narrative, the initial narrative is usually the one that sticks. But I think we have become more aware of how stories are spun and mm -hmm. You know, if you follow the story more completely, if it's not satisfying, then you'll find, you know, more, you'll get closer to the truth, although that is so elusive, you know, fact. And there's plenty of distractions, right? Yeah. <laughs> How yep, many distractions absolutely. are there out there, as you pointed out? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm really, you know, I like that example that you offered there, because it, it brings us back to what you were talking about, where the you know, origin of this story began for you, something that you saw back in the early 2000s, the, I think they call them the aughts, and this idea of what has transpired just in, say, 20 years. I mean, let's say if we take, you know, 2000 to 2020 to 2023, and you're thinking that much further into 175 years down the road. Um, I'm also gonna say- 175 years, after 2024. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually 170. We'll see. We'll we'll see. Now, here's the danger. You know, it's not like you wrote this last year. You you've been potentially predicting that 2024 could be very interesting just from this story alone. Um, I'm not saying I'm cashing out my stocks or stocking up on water. No. Um, <laughs> I am keeping in mind though that it, it does give us this sense of just how precarious it can be you know how much 
does it take? We're living in a world right now where in, in this past six months, we've seen two major banking institutions go through um, an amazing fall and only be rescued in whatever terms that might be defined for the time being, while it feels as though so many other things are as uncertain as they were in 2007. In, in a way that uh, consolidating. So basically we're concentrating power again to the top. Right. So what happens exactly. when, um, you know, it's all at, it's all at the tip of the pyramid. And I think that's really important. I was reading an article from The Atlantic today, and it's a recent study published, a book written by um, a gentleman who's made some success. The name's not coming to me right now. I'll, I'll send it to you and I'll include it in the notes for anyone who's interested. But it's a very in-depth study. Um, and this is someone whose previous book won a Pulitzer Award for the work that he did investigating another incident. But he describes how the profiting that occurs off of the lower income communities. It's it's how those in power stay in power. It's how they constantly maintain leverage. And the example you're describing there, yet another example of narrowing who actually has access to what and who is controlling all of these different factors and how much they're pushing down on the others. Um, it's amazing that no one seems 176 years later to <laughs> be worried about that sort of risk as they're starting to like, you know, build these communities, whether it's a healthy sort of wholesome approach like the Black Klan's considering, or, I mean, I'm sorry, but I hear the word casino city and immediately I just think of like a leech, just something that's designed to suck away money and life from anything that comes in to that environment. You know, I, I've, I've never heard someone say, yeah, I came away with so much more when I went to like Vegas or Atlantic City or um, Macau or <laughs> something like that. They're like, yeah, you know, I, I ended up with all this extra money. It's just so great every time. It's like, no, well, I don't we know some people that do win at Vegas. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and, and those who do, but you know, you, you keep in mind, it's like, you know, when you look at how many lottery tickets are sold and how many win, <laughs> that's always just one of those reflections this idea well, of like online you know, sports gambling is just you know i think there's 30 states now where it's legal and i can't see where that's going to be helpful for most people i'm sure there's going to be a few people that win i mean and when they win they're going to be like glorified and you know you know just like a lottery winner like billion dollar lottery winner like you know that's that's me. I'm gonna do that. You know, I don't think so. Not necessarily. So, and yet, you know, there's gonna be more more opportunities for addiction, more opportunities for suicide, more opportunities for substance abuse. You know, it just opens up these cans of worms that keep opening up. I mean, you know, uh, marijuana uh, legalization. Basically, I mean, I'm all for that, but what happens is it becomes corporatized. So it's like my friend, um, longtime friend is uh, basically a cannabis lawyer in San Francisco or Oakland actually. Mm. And um, you know, he was like pushing for it. And I was telling him, man, the corporation is going to take it over and it's going to be, you know, and uh, you know, it's going to be taken out of the hands of, of, normal people 
And he goes, that's America. And then, you know, years later, I, I just remind him of that. And I go, that's America, right? And right. yeah, that's America. <laughs> so the thing is, is that as this, as the haves and have nots, the, the gap between them grows and grows. And as energy, I mean, it's like in England, oh yeah, wood. Uh, we need wood for, uh, for, you know, to burn things, of course. Then it's coal. You know, first they're making ships for the Navy. So they decimate, you know, uh, Nottingham, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, Sherwood Forest. Um, right. uh, they go to coal because they need, uh, they're getting uh, cotton. They have to, uh, the mills, mm -hmm. iron, uh, tin, all this, all the natural resources that were in England. They, England had coal and tin and wood and all that stuff. Then they had to go outside and, um, you know, oh, whaling for the oil for the lamps. Oh, we're we almost killed all the whales. Oh, we just found petroleum. Now we're using up all the petroleum. Oh, uh, we're going electric. Oh, the lithium. Uh, where is all that stuff? You know, oh, we're used all that. So basically, we're just going through all of the natural resources. And, um, you know, when we <laughs> run out and it, you know, mankind fails to transcend the petroleum age. We got dog eaters. Right. We're 175 years later. We're we're in this violent future where you know you have to fight for the right to continue existing. You have to find your own way to um, manage that. I, I, I'm going to take a moment and just sort of rewind for a second because you know I, I really enjoyed reading your you know insights on how there was a period where you enjoyed writing you had a negative response from a teacher and it took a while for you to begin investing in it again but the result turned into winning awards for a screenplay and later into this project i, I i'm curious you know what was it like to embrace writing again and do so with this purpose of seeing the world the way it was and to recognize like something's happening here and I have an opportunity to take what I'm seeing and tell a story about what happens when it all goes so far and so wrong and we end up with a world in which dog eaters is not only likely it completely makes sense 176 years later when you were starting out with this was the narrative as grand as you have made it now? Did it start with a small idea with like, let's start with a clan, you know, and the black dogs and then build out like, okay, so what are they fighting against? Or did you see a, a bigger story right from the beginning? Because I, I think that part of process is always uh, so interesting with creativity, you know, where it comes from, how it begins and that growth and evolution, I think is always really amazing. Well, my, um creative journey if i want to be so grandiose as to call it that um, be grandiose this is the place to do it if you <laughs> claim it exclaim uh, it and go for yeah, it. yeah I, I took some writing courses in in college and um my writing teacher creative writing teacher said oh you could get this published it was a short story and you know it's like oh whatever you know i didn't follow up but um because um i bad romantic experience um i 
had to express a certain kind of honesty. I was got into sculpture. I was doing um, so it was a sort of fine arts became a fine art major and psychology double major, and got into um, you know the conceptual side of art and. My master's thesis was a one-hour film, actually. It was a one-hour film. And when I moved from Hawaii to Japan, where I live now, uh, and I parlayed that, you know, using that as a kind of a resume, the film, uh, to doing music videos, as doing music, uh, directing and producing music videos, and doing some music, which I'd been doing, you know, for the film and whatever. So, you know, it's a very, you know, low level thing. And one of our friends came, uh, was had an exhibition in Ginza. She came from Hawaii, she was exhibiting. And one of the people she was traveling with was uh, a fortune teller. And I was like, oh yeah, I read my fortune, um, you know, and she, um doing uh uh written these actually i was writing novels at the time and so so what do you think um you know should i you know do that and she goes yeah you have a talent for writing what about music what about film she goes no do the writing so um i did i wrote some novels uh two two three of them and i was actually had literary representation in new york and london none of them uh were published, thankfully, because they were of uh, the sort of the Jay McInerney uh, kind of amoral situation, you know, uh, sort of seedy under uh, belly, uh, you know, strippers, photographers, you know, yakuza, this kind of stuff, and actually not a healthy thing. So I. From writing writing that story, uh, that novel, Grown In Camera, um, I had a motorcycle accident and I was in the hospital. And one of um, the fathers of one of my uh, uh, my sons, uh, they they were classmates. Mm. He came to visit. He's a doctor. He's looking at my you know, X rays, and then he mentioned that his mother was a screen uh, supervisor for. Uh, like he worked with Spielberg and whatever, it just turned into a screenplay. So that's how I got into writing uh, screenplays. And that that screenplay, Ronin Camera, actually did get um, was also a small, you know, contest winner, and it was optioned. But again, thankfully, it wasn't made because it would just I would have gone off the rails, you know, just uh, in a wrong direction. It would have sent me in the wrong direction. So my path, you know, led, you know, to more of a, even though it does contain those elements of sex and violence, it's not totally fixated in, in a negative way, which, you know, as you see from what's going on now, a lot of these, um, a lot of what's going on in the media and entertainment is pretty unhealthy, I think. The music, there are, the blues, it's There are plenty of examples unhealthy. that support that. Yeah. I yeah. And agree. It basically it, it's so powerful, um, visual and uh, music. Uh, the combination is can be very, very hypnotizing, very powerful. Um, it can uh, bend your mind. Like I think, um, I mean, you can call it, you know, they reflect off each other. Art imitates 
life imitates art imitates life and it just becomes uh, it's an echo chamber that becomes really concentrated and it, it kind of like focuses on a, a certain aspect of it i think scarface which was a great movie was really really unhealthy <laughs> really really bad but really really good you know what i'm saying it was it's still considered extremely powerful i can think of moments from it that still resonate with me simply because they, <laughs> they showed something that had never been seen before you know they 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 brought to life um things mm -hmm. that people who had experienced them could say oh yeah i know the the, the darker version people of that story copying that also sure. godfather you know just the uh the mentality the um idolization of right down to the dialogue you know it's like so powerful these kind of things so basically they're they're great i love them but you know i also love heroin you know that kind of thing. <laughs> i love fentanyl so I, i'm curious about but anyway this. so that's what that's where my writing my writing went into and then uh i wrote dog eaters based on you know what we discussed before and um you know continuing to write uh along writing stories now that um i feel are important to express um so it, well, taking taking it beyond um just action adventure trying to do that anyways uh genre not gender but genre crossing <laughs> understood I'm but even that like what i'm writing now is also combining those kind of things together in a way that is uh natural and um you know kind of like you know it it's like um not far future uh the next one i wrote was sacred profanity which is also uh a first place winner action adventure for us uh, story pros i'm just looking at it right now <laughs> yeah story pros and um that's set in 2055 so um you know again knowing what's going on in hollywood now another thing that's gone on is that we're understanding more and more about how the entertainment world i mean for ordinary people unless you know outside looking from the outside looking in uh music you know unless you've actually been there working you don't and even then you know you know, the me too and all this stuff you know that's always happened that's always been from the very beginning of movies and whatever sex has been a transactional uh way uh transactional sex has always been transactional in entertainment from way you know historically and yet now you know, so all this stuff starts coming out and then people are starting to see that not just in entertainment, but in religion and every, every organization, you have this, these, these situations, sports, um, government, everything, education, everything. And so what happens is um, you start to see this and it's not as bright and shiny as it, as it originally, you know, looked before. 
I'm I'm curious. It, it, it's clear that when you were working on projects like the novels or Ronin Camera, that you were working, you know, towards something that was interesting to readers or to viewers. That you're working on an idea that's going to be compelling and gripping, and yet there's a change that occurs when you start working on dog eaters. And I'm curious, it was it gradual or was there an intent from the moment you started working on dog eaters that there was a, a clear awareness in your mind of like, this is very different from what I've been doing. I'm doing this for reasons that are different. Or was it something that you recognized later and you saw that at some point there was this clear delineation from what you had been sort of pursuing and um, focusing on, as you mentioned with the other projects to what you're doing now and you know, also how you view those previous projects. So Ronin Camera was basically the first major, uh, you know, novel length. I mean, we're talking 400 pages, right, of, of prose. And um, then I, uh, before Destiny's Child, the, the music group, I read a story called Destiny's Child. And then um, yet another one, which I, the title escapes me right now but basically just trying to be entertaining in a titulating way. Like, this is cool. This is sexy. Um, you know, in kind of like, this is entertainment or something. This is, you know, in that way. And then um, when I, when I got to, um, you know, after that, um, you know, the, just kind of after, you know, kind of like nine 11 and, you know, this kind of feeling just, Oh, you know, this is disgusting. Uh, this, this, these aspects of Western culture disgust me. Uh, I'm when it all comes tumbling down because it's it, it's not sustainable. What's going to happen? So then I did that, and it, it's just kind of like an action adventure. But then with Sacred Profanity, which is um, a story. Uh, that started as a screenplay. Um, and it's, uh, the log line is, in a dystopian, balkanized America, meaning that what we're seeing now, the polarization of uh, the coasts, the interior, red, blue, left, right, uh, Democrat, Republican, uh, Trump, Rhino, uh, Biden, AOC, or whatever, you know, we're seeing this balkanization, the polarization, splitting apart America's no ununited states of America, still the USA, but it's not, it's the ununited. So basically, in a dystopian, balkanized America, a journalist investigating the assassination of a charismatic spiritual teacher must elude the death squads of both the UN peacekeepers and the divine faith to find and reveal the truth and witness the resurrection. So moving away from this physical world of like, you know, politics, uh, established religion, this kind of thing, 
and going to other, I guess you would call it dimensions or consciousness to see if there's a way out before we get to the die off. Is there a way out? Can we transcend the petroleum age? So that's what sacred profanity, that story is about. And then the story I'm writing now is um, still kind of untitled, but it's based <coughs> kind of now. And it's about who's watching the watchers, who watch the watchers, who watch the watchers. So Watchman was like, who watches the watchers? Right. But now we have these agencies, these new agencies, <coughs> beyond the CIA, ODNI, um, you know, there's a, you know, and there's misin the misinformation or disinformation, you know, they're, they're monitoring everything now, you know, beyond Twitter files and all this stuff. So basically it's who is being able to oversee all of this and sort of mold the, uh, the narrative. So that's what I'm working on now. And it, it's tough. It's a tough <laughs> I can imagine, you know, um, there's, there's plenty of things I, I think that you would want to sort of weigh against each other for how much can you include as, as new information is coming out so often exactly. uh, these days about exactly. who's doing what and what roles are being played. But I, I'm really intrigued by this, this um, uh, progression in your works, simply because when you're talking about sacred profanity, there's a clear delineation from something like Ronin Camera, you know, this idea of like one is about, you know, the the seedy, the sexy, the the thrilling, the titillating, and another is about, okay, what is truth when it's something that two sides who normally would oppose each other, both are willing to unite to uh, suppress. And this idea of going beyond that to now thinking about um, when you're thinking about the uh, dog eaters, right? Uh, so far in the future that now these other stories that you're talking about, for example, with sacred profanity, it's almost like, is there a turn before we get to dog eaters? And now even with the project you're in now, how much can be understood about what events are transpiring and who is doing the pulling of different strings and what those strings look like compared to what we might imagine them, but also now it's almost like you're showing us moments where maybe something could change. Maybe, like you said, with sacred profanity, a left or a right turn could be made that that takes us from going straight into dog eaters. Or maybe it's just a branch that gives us a chance until we just end up right back where we're going to end up all along. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's... Um, go ahead. <laughs> it's, you know, if you... If you um, have been following any of the Atlantean, you know, stories about Atlantis and stuff like that. It's like, um, it's a different technology. And yet, because we're human, we have the same faults. We have the same imperfections that always cause this, the downfall, basically. And so, it, you know, 10,000 years, 15,000 years later, we start again, 
you know, from come out of the cave, you know, whoever survives comes out of the cave, whatever, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> it seems like I such mean, a there's, that, there's that theory. And then another theory, which I'm, you know, going to work on later, but I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's technology an NDA. is a... my own personal NDA. <laughs> gotcha. No, no. Yeah. That's an allusion to uh, a little something we got to chat about before I hit record. But I, I'm really interested in, in the idea you're, you're mentioning there because it's no matter how far advanced Atlantis might have been, no matter how far advanced other societies might have existed prior to the last 250, maybe 600 years of recorded history as we understand it and the growth and development that come with it. And, what technologies and knowledge was sort of gained or lost, you know, I, my mind always goes to the library of Alexandria and, and what could have been if that knowledge had not been destroyed, but through it all, there's almost like this idea that we can be better with technology. And yet you've already mentioned it since the beginning of this recording, that there is a need as described, just as you really well summarized with the idea of Atlantis and us, the technology can get better but if we don't transcend with the technology at some point the technology turns around like a magnifying glass and just continues to expound the flaws that are our eventual downfall but in the process it's like if we don't transcend with the technology if we create advancements that we are not able to use to you know sort of say like hey in order to use this technology in a healthy way we need to come up here we need to lift ourselves up beyond our current flaws, petty needs, things like that, we are doomed. That technology will eventually be our downfall. This, this craving- Technology is a tool. Right. That's all it is. And, but what happens is tools become weaponized. It's like um, when the English, I, I go, always come back to the English, the England, because they are basically the core of what contemporary uh, Western culture and civilization has become. They're the foundation of it. I mean, you talk Greece, Rome, whatever, but no, the, you know, the banking systems and all this kind of stuff is, you know, kind of started with England. And, and what they did, weird. when they were exploring the Pacific, you know, the, the friendly isles, uh, you know, Hawaii, whatever, they were helped, they were aided, you know, they fed and given things. So it's like, oh, what can we get in return? Oh, they don't have iron. Let's give them knives, you know, in the, you know, New Guinea and this area here. Let's give them knives. So what happens is those tribes that got the knives, turn them into weapons and kill, you know, kill their enemies. And this is what happens is like, um, you know, oh, they're primitive, but we do the same thing. It's like, oh, we have, um, we have a gun. It's a tool, right? But if we are not um, in a place where we can use tools responsibly, if we exactly. allow our flaws to control <laughs> how we use these tools, then we are warping those tools because of the way we're using them. And that warping is in most cases destructive. Um, 
you don't split an atom, you don't, you know, <laughs> create cold fusion, you don't develop a weapon, and at some point think that your flaws can't be part of it undoing you. You know, it's it's and it's absolutely true. Guns don't kill people. People kill true. people, <laughs> and that's absolutely true. So what's what's the um, what's the solution? Um, right. Oh, we gotta ban guns. No, we gotta ban people. Go to the source, right? Or ban killers. How do you do that? <laughs> um, How do you? Well, it all starts in the mind. So where is the teaching? Oh, it's the family. Most of the violence that happens is within the family. Okay, so where do we go from there? It's really tough. And dog eaters um, has that aspect too. The internal tension between a family inside a family is so important. How do we deal with petty human ambition, desire, the weaknesses in the basic thing that humans are all about? So with dog eaters, you have this internal conflict as well as having to deal with an external conflict. And that's kind of like the result, you know, how that gets re resolved uh, within this um, story and how, um, you know, how the next generation proceeds from this journey. And yet I, I have to wonder, you know, you look at the present day, right? You, you look at how many people have so many of their needs taken care of. They have all of these amenities and yet I'm not aware of them letting us know that they have transcended to a degree that they can show the rest of the community, if not the world at large, how to transcend to a degree that we can find ourselves able to move beyond a need for things like resources to be controlled and power and petroleum and things like that. And if they can't do it, flip forward to 175, 176 years later, where as a caravan, your whole thing is about how do you survive moving from place to place? Will there be what you need in each place you go to? Can you build up enough to eventually set up this trade post? How then is it going to be possible for anyone in that environment where fighting to live every day is probably such a primary focus that thinking about your fellow man, thinking about those around you, thinking about trying to build a better future than the one that was destroyed and then created the present you're living in now, uh, it's, it's quite a challenge. You know, how can you in a new world avoid the uh, traps and failings that destroyed the old one? Is it possible? Can we rise above it our is. human flaws in a post-apocalyptic world? Humans unite. <laughs> Humans unite when there's outside aggression, Threats outside threats. Ronald Reagan said it. The world will unite when aliens attack us. But see, all, all that does is upscale. Right. That just upscales. So basically what happens in dog eaters is you have a, um, the threat, the constant threat of the roaches, different swarms of roaches. They're not united. It's constant. 
And then dealing with this threat is what has kept the clan together. You know, you, Rebecca, chastises Lamont for his infidelity. And then he comes back with, haven't I always protected this clan? What if there were no threats? That, that behavior becomes inexcusable? Because I protected, because I have a defense system, you know, is that good enough? Is that good is enough to validate my position as a leader of this clan? And if there was a change that threatened that validation, that justification, that need, if, if a transcendent said that is a secondary role to a primary concern of which should be your, your focus. And while it does hold a value, it's secondary or tertiary, maybe even because of what's of a greater importance, how then will the actions used to justify those reasons, you know, hold up, as you pointed out, can they be validated when suddenly something else replaces if that threat of the roaches was removed with the justification for why things were done you know there's there's a great parallel to events in which people are put under high stress and suddenly groups divide and actions are taken and then suddenly there's the relief of that tension and everyone has to look at who they became during those moments of great tension during that period where there was great unrest and uncertainty and people chose to act out of their own self-preservation or what they believed was important in the moment. Values change. Values change. Oh, so wow. if values change for uh, the uh, the Black Dog Clan, you know what what then changes for their relationships as a clan? Does a clan still hold together? Does someone like Lamont still hold the you know authority and? Um, role of protector if protection isn't needed anymore <laughs> can infidelities be overlooked anymore or be sort of uh put to the side in pursuit of a greater goal it's a trade-off trade right. so um what is acceptable 50 years ago 100 years ago 150 years ago may not be acceptable now or what was acceptable two years ago is not acceptable now. And, and those, also and those interestingly, things, oh, sorry, <laughs> we had an overlap. <laughs> those things are right now accelerating in terms of what is acceptable and not acceptable. I mean, just look at Bud Light. In reference to um, their recent campaign and the backlash they've had for, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, remember the suddenly. Maybe five years ago, that would work. Maybe two years ago, it does. It would work. But two weeks ago, it doesn't work. You know, so the culture right now, we're in a very accelerated situation culturally, I think. Things are changing so quickly, it's hard to keep up. And in terms of entertainment, film, I mean, you go back to the original 
the original Star Wars, the original Mary Poppins, you know, and um, I'm not into Star Wars now or something, you know, I'm not into Iron Man now or Marvel now. The first one was great. So you see how things change. Um, they try to keep the same thing, trying to extend the universe, but the universe is changing. And so now what it means to be an American is changing as well. And that's kind of like where we're, you know, we're headed towards a, a die off. And through that, what, what will survive afterwards is something somewhat similar to what we're talking about now, this division of clans, this, this grouping up based on what's important to you, what you're willing to fight for. And, and I, I think it's interesting because, you know, you, you go back to what you were mentioning just a minute ago about values. Also, you know, simply it's interesting because it's like values existed before certain things came to light. And yet there was a, in some ways also a system that was designed to keep those things in place for as long as they could. One of the trade-offs with the distraction technology that we do have available is it's, it's given avenues for that information to be disseminated in a way that prior you had to go through a major institution like a publication or a news source where someone from there has to validate your story and then turn around and say, this is something that can be shared with the public. And, and then also now, too, the transparency, yes, it's, it's readily available, but these institutions from before, the church, mm -hmm. the government, from hundreds of years ago, they're doing the same things and worse, and worse, but we don't know about it. And then it's all rosied over with glasses that <coughs> sort of tint our perception of the past saying that, oh, we can make America great again. We can go back to a more pure time when actually there's no difference. Was and it really where, that pure? That's where it is. is <laughs> what, what, what has happening is it's concentrated now. And as it gets more and more concentrated, the chance for total collapse becomes greater. So going back to dog eaters, we're building it from the ground up. And yet the same problems exist. So how I... do we solve this? <laughs> and that's one of the, you know, how dog eaters <coughs> ends, there's this kind of thing. And I'm not going to give it away because I have an NDA. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, folks, well, we're going to give you so much that you can use to, you know, whet your appetite <laughs> as far as getting a satisfying meal or a satisfaction from digesting this great material. There's only one way to do it. So, with all of that in mind, um, we've been enticing people for the last hour or so <laughs> with, with all of this great information. And at some point they're like, Seth, you have not even given the man a chance to tell us where to go, where to find it. How do we get our hands on mm -hmm. it? Um, where do you send folks who are like, okay, you've hooked me. I just want to get it now. Um, <laughs> well, that's um, ASAP Imagination in UK, based in UK. They're the current... Um, distributor and I guess um, agent okay. or dog eaters. Uh, 
and um, they, um, I've had, Dargis has had a number of publishers and distributors. Uh, I retain the uh, intellectual property rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but ASAP Imagination, uh, there's a website, uh, there's a shopping site. I'll include the links and, for, um, for folks on that, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so that's where you find it. Um, it's available in print. Let me get you. <laughs> it's available in print. Oh, nice. Yeah. And there's um, a forward which talks about in the beginning, I had a thought that led to a few words, which became a few sentences, and talks about why I wrote this. I love the and art. And afterward, it tells about this, the journey, basically, is an independent. I mean, there's different paths to being a creator. And if you want to retain your property, this is how I did it in the afterward. Nice. And, you know, as we were, Seth and I were discussing, we live in neo feudalistic times where what your labor is done in the service of, of our overlords which are corporations usually. And you're not even allowed to say sometimes, <laughs> you're not allowed to say that I did this in, with an uh, NDA a lot of times. Um, I was telling Seth <laughs> that there's some creators that have done some amazing things emojis and things in the digital realm. I'm talking about young people, millennials, mid millennials, 30s, late 20s. They are owned basically. And their creative creativity is owned. They're not even allowed to say I did this in their NDA. And that's criminal. I mean, as far as well, it's not criminal, it's legal. That's the problem. It's perfectly legal. And this is this is the um, the place where we're finding ourselves in is that you know being um, in neo feudalism we're ruled by multinational corporations globalists uh, crossing um, national boundaries to yet another intersecting Venn diagram of authoritarianism control over individuals, individual rights, as they shrink, as surveillance becomes more and more prevalent. So, you know, the afterward tells, tells about the journey that I've taken. It's not easy and it's not profitable, really. Um, unless, you know, we're talking about lottery and online gambling. These are carrots that are so far held in front of us that are you know 
infant, the odds of getting that are infinitesimal. So that's my bright <laughs> end of court. And yet at the same time, it's not enough to deter you from working on the project you're working on <laughs> or to keep striving to create things that you can maintain, you know, the uh, creative control over and find ways to continue sharing with the world. I think it's a testament to the fact that these corporations will keep doing the things they're doing. And to a degree, um, you know, there are those who are going to be sort of bartering for their future by working for someone else now just so they can find themselves in a place where they can take the uh the leap or selling the rights and... selling the rights if you're a creator selling True. the rights right? so right. for example the uh, sacred profanity you know thinking about the current like i started to get into it but i, I got sidetracked sorry about that the kind of no that was me kind okay. of um who would who would bankroll something like a story like sacred profanity and you start thinking like um you know it, it's so tough 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 extremely tough even for people that are at the highest level now i'm thinking about um uh mazel uh, who started the uh marvel universe <coughs> No, he doesn't have the rights, but he created the structure for Iron Man and all this kind of stuff. Uh, just reading about it today, this morning. Mm. And this guy is at the highest level, and yet, in order to get the funding, billionaire funding, you have to, you know, you have to give up so much of your life to get it done. So, like, okay, I make the story, I sell it. And hopefully whoever buys it does it justice, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the challenge. But I appreciate that you describe your journey in the afterward because it gives someone an opportunity to then consider it. You know, what does that path look like if I'm choosing to go in this? What are some possible ways it could turn out? You know, there's, there's the hope and glory of buying the lottery ticket and thinking it could be you. And then there's the realization when someone else's number is being read off on the screen and all you have is a piece of paper and you have to make a choice to sort of invest again. You know, how much of your time and money will you put into this project, knowing that it, it could turn out as your story went or as other things might transpire that could be worse, better. Uh, the truth is it's, it's so unknown, but you... You either don't create and and sort of tell yourself you'll never get anywhere with it, or you create and you take a chance. And in the end, you know if it's a if it's a pursuit, if it's a calling, <laughs> at some point, well, you're right. How much did those things come into what the value of what you've created? I'm just putting is. it out in the universe. This idea and right. expressing this idea, these ideas and get it if you know it'll get read somehow um it'll get talked about you know like we're talking about it now true and these ideas go out and so with that vibration you you know it's a little pebble 
that goes thrown in the ocean and whether the ripples die out or they cause a tsunami, it's all up to timing. Things have to conf in confluence. It's not just one idea that, oh, this is a great idea. It has to be with timing, with other factors, build it up, and it hopefully comes out. I can't think of a, a better place to wrap up. Um, one, I want to save your voice. And two, um, <laughs> thank you that that's a, a really great place for me to leave. It's one of those things that I, I love about a conversation like this because that's the reminder, you know, at the end of it, if you're willing to make that choice, well, pick up your pebble, give a big toss, and then get ready to make another pebble or find another one and do it again. And um, yeah. That's a really great place. I'd love to wrap up. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I can't, um, <laughs> I can't ever thank people who come on enough in the way I would love to, to show my gratitude for such a great exchange, for such a great conversation. And in my hope that this is another document of art, of creation that people can enjoy. Thank you so much for making it so great. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Now we're going to end the recording and talk like civil human beings not being observed. And with that. <laughs>